Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 346 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas, joined by guest and frequent co-host, James Dodds. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing well in this uh, California summer day in Austin. (laughs) Yes, it's one of those days, this being towards the end of February in winter when in Austin it's, you know, 65 degrees in the morning and then warms into the 80s. You're wearing shorts and t-shirts and the sun's out and shining and you feel like it's summer, but it's not oppressive summer like we get in June and July and August. So it's nice, especially after having a really cold weekend. Yeah. It's weird timing, but I don't even want to think on that because I just want to absorb that it's a really nice day (laughs) and I'm like, make hay while the sun shines. And then, yeah, but otherwise it doesn't make logical sense um, to be in shorts in February anyway. Right. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's it's the reason why people come to festivals in Austin in particular. I'm thinking about South by Southwest in March coming up here in a few weeks and they think I want to move to Austin because of the weather we have in this time of year and you just want to bottle it up and save it for the summer, but alas, we can't do that. So, excited to have you on the show. We're going to be talking about I think a a fun topic, this is something that I've had on my mind actually for a little bit, but I wanted to do, and then you and I talked about it yesterday of doing this topic of sort of, I call it coaching curiosities, coaching ruminations, things that topically we've kind of been thinking about a lot because of things that we're reading, perhaps stuff that athletes are bringing up and or things that we're observing with our athletes. So yes, so we've each come up with three things that we've been ruminating on for one reason or another. We're digging into from a coaching curiosity standpoint. And so we haven't talked about them. We're just going to go in, go back and forth, kind of pull a topic out of the grab bag and then talk about it and hopefully hit some things that are relevant, things that you might have been hearing about as listeners, but also hopefully educate you as well and and help you maybe filter through what to do and how to manage some of the conversations around some of these topics so or how to apply it to your own training so that's the goal for this episode kind of the coaching curiosity coaching ruminations episode we've got six things three each we'll go back and forth and just kind of beat it around before we get into it wanted to quickly thank my sponsor for this episode john g john g running apparel They've been working with me now for almost a year and have become quickly my favorite running apparel company, especially my favorite half tight brand. James knows I love a good half tight and they are my favorite. So I've been wearing those, also wearing a lot of their merino stuff right now because it has been colder, the perfect fabric for sweating in the wintertime because it keeps you warm, but also wicks the water away. So. Thanks to John G for all the gear they've been giving to me. We'll talk a little bit more about them mid-episode. Okay, let's jump in, James. Three things, three coaching curiosities, coaching ruminations that we can talk about. I'll start. And this one kind of comes on the back of some of the things I've been thinking about post-Houston for me. You know, you were generous to do that post-Houston recap for me. One of the things... I talked about at the end when you asked me what's next 
is adding more aerobic volume to the equation. And, you know, when I say that initially, I'm sure everybody thinks, okay, well, he wants to add more miles per week, which is true. I do actually want to add more miles per week than what I was doing prior to Houston. Obviously, in a way that allows me to recover from it. But I'm also, but my curiosity is extending beyond just the running element right now to consider also other ways to add aerobic volume. One of my running coach Twitter crushes, his name's Alan Cousins. I think I've mentioned him before on this podcast. Last name spelled C-O-U-Z-E-N-S. Talks a lot. He's a triathlon coach, so he talks a lot about not just how you add aerobic volume from a triathlon standpoint with running and swimming and biking all together, but also thinking about developing aerobic fitness across all zones, looking at adding significant aerobic volume in order to get to the VO2 max levels that people might want to be at in order to have longevity, but also in order to perform. And so he's got me thinking about not just adding more volume, but also potentially adding more aerobic work outside of running, biking potentially, even I think about walking as a potential avenue to that, which, you know, is on your feet, so to speak, but, but is not that direct impact oriented running approach. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot for my personal applications as I build into this year and build back from Houston. But I also think it has a lot of tentacles for people in their training. And so, but before I throw it to you to kind of get reactions, I want to first set some context because I think when people hear me say that, they think, oh, you know, what is Chris espousing here? Is he considering, you know, an approach that would be lower volume running, more other cross training, swimming, biking, whatever it may be? And the answer is no. This is not a change in my perspective on the importance of volume related to your easy running miles in particular. And in fact, I think if anybody's optimizing the layers to their journey, the first layer, the foundation is running volume. That is still important. And you should first optimize that before you start to layer in some of these other things I'm talking about. You know, I'm in a place where I'm running 65 miles a week in marathon training, have run 80 plus miles per week for full training cycles in the past, have even done 100 mile weeks a few times. So I know I can handle the volume if I have the time and capacity to. And believe me, I'm looking at adding more running volume. But then, so it's not about that. It's about once I've established that routine, that protocol, and have built and gotten the most out of it from that perspective first, given how your body responds to volume, then how can you get more and do it in a way where the movement itself is aerobic, but not as taxing physically as running can be? because of the low impact of swimming or cycling, for example, or even of walking, which can give you a good zone two stimulus that also can benefit your zones one and two and three and beyond. So that's sort of one element here. The other element that comes into these discussions is not just the aerobic benefit, but also the metabolic benefit. And so I've really been leaning into and considering and 
reading about the metabolic benefit to low intensity work from a fat burning adaptation standpoint in particular of even walking, but low intensity biking, low intensity swimming and how there's significant benefits to that, which I've always known about, but haven't thought as much about perhaps as I have the benefits of low intensity running in that category of benefits. So I'll pause there, kind of let you react, but this has been something that I've been thinking about playing with and considering the impact for me as well as for the athletes I coach. Yeah, I don't have any kind of like uh, major reaction except for them. Um, just kind of curious, like even you individually, how you might start incorporating it and what it might look like or hiking will make that list. And um, I guess there's there, first that curiosity. And then I was also thinking like on a personal level, like um, more walking of the dog, like trading out sort of evening like routines where instead of getting trapped into a hour, two hour Netflix, it's like, what would be the benefit of incorporating four one hour evening walks um, and what could be that payoff that was one thought on a personal level that came to mind as you were talking and then naturally just curious specifically what and how you might incorporate yeah yeah. a a good reasonable question so part of me goes to thinking about cycling as a something you know i did a triathlon i had a triathlon phase back in my my day my earlier years of running where i did a couple years of triathlons and was doing half Ironmans and things like that and actually enjoyed the biking component of that more than I thought I would, but then got away from it as I could get back into more focused running. So there's a thought of getting a bike, getting a road bike again and doing more of that. I'm not a trainer person or somebody who wants to be on a spin bike or something like that, but finding safe ways to get out and potentially do some easy biking on the on the roads is, is one thing I'm thinking about. The other thing I'm thinking about is the walking element. And you know, some people talk about, well, I need to get a walking mat. I don't know if you've seen these kind of like treadmill like devices that are just that don't have rails, but are just like walking mats that people use with standing desks to walk during meetings and walk during, you know, responding to email and things like that. I don't think that's ever going to be me. But, you know, I do have hours during the day where I'm having athlete conversations, potentially one on one conversations. And it might be two or three blocks, you know, two or three hours of time where I'm having athlete conversations kind of back to back with some of my one-on-one athletes, for example. And can I, instead of doing those in front of a computer screen with a zoom on, could I throw in the AirPods, go for a walk for two or three hours while having those conversations, you know, with some notes in my hand to make sure I know what I need to cover with each of them. And that would be a way to potentially extend the walking side of the equation without compromising the need to get work done, right? So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. So that's something I've considered. Also definitely going to be adding more easy volume to the equation and and probably even stretching what that looks like even for me. You know, I'm somebody who will do a nine minute, 10 minute mile run as a Somebody's trying to run six minute X on the marathon, but can I throw in some 11, 12 minute miles to add volume where I can still recover from that volume given the hectic life that I have with three kids and a business and a job and so forth. So, you know, 
So those are the components. And believe me, I believe the running volume is the first layer of that, but definitely thinking about the other two as well. Yeah, I'll give just a thumbs up on the walking meeting. I like that idea. And um, I'm trying to establish that as a rhythm, at least for my local one-to-ones. Um, anytime I get a text and it's like, coach, can we talk through a race strategy or et cetera? I'm like, are you open to the walk and talk? Um, that's just an enjoy. I, I would call it a meeting enhancement. Um, and I haven't quite tried it with the virtual meetings, but now I'm chewing on that. I'm like, I wonder if they'd mind if I'm outdoors walking, they might hear a little wind, et cetera, but I'll chew yeah. on, on trying to see if a few of them want to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, you could do it together. Both walk during that time, right? Instead of sitting in front of a zoom, why not? And, you know, I've had to occasionally do those on the go on the, you know, in the car while I'm, I don't have a camera on. So it's, if I can do that, why couldn't I do it walking? So those are some things I think about there. The other part of the equation, by the way, is, you know, when you dig into some of the longevity discussions about VO2 max and how it starts to fall off over time, just like you lose muscle mass, you know, some of the research and some of the things that Alan Cousin talks about, talks about is that, you know, we need to be doing not you know, one hour of aerobic activity on average per day, but two to four hours of aerobic activity, most of that low intensity as we age in order to just maintain the ability to do basic things. You know, the Centarian Decathlon that Peter Atia talks about in his book, Outlive, we need to be significantly amping up our aerobic time at low intensity in order to maintain the VO2 max to do simple things like walking up and down stairs, being able to, you know, play pickleball when you're 75 and, and, you know, do things that allow you just to kind of live a normal life like you would today. And so I think there's an ancillary benefit there too, that most people don't talk about, you know, and when they talk about it, we talk about it in much smaller quantities but there is a, a world out there that believes in pretty radical increases in low-intensity aerobic work as you age just to hold on to the basics of being able to operate as a human. Yeah. And so then it becomes, well, okay, if that's true, how do I integrate that into a busy lifestyle in a way that's not overwhelming? So things to think about. And again, you know, the intention of this episode isn't necessarily to say do this or that, right? This is more a curiosity. And I don't know that we're going to necessarily have definitive statements to make in this episode, but more like these are curiosities, things to ruminate on stuff that maybe hasn't gotten airtime or you heard about and want our reactions to. So we're not necessarily trying to tell you to do certain things, but just hopefully sparking some interest and curiosity in the listeners about some of these topics as well. Okay. Let's go to your number one. That was good. So, um, my first one that I wrote down was like Garmin slash fitness scores or, um, you know, what basically a way to put this out there would be, uh, what your watch is saying about how you're doing as opposed to what you feel about what you're doing. And I guess to, (laughs) frame it a little more even as I would say, I was thinking about this from less of like a, um, I'm curious and therefore researching it 
but more of a, the, this seems to pop up and it does seem to have an impact on the way some of my athletes feel about their progress um, or maybe feel on a certain day. And then, so I'll either see them writing things on a message board when it comes to virtual group or questions they bring to me. Um, you know, they might've felt like they did okay in a workout, but then, you know, their watch is telling them they're like under trained or not peaking or, or, or the reverse. Even, you know, I was having a conversation with someone recently who very last second wanted to jump into a race and kind of built it around. Like, she's like, well, my watch says I'm here. And I was like, well, I don't want to create too big of expectations because we haven't been training at this and peaking for it. So it was a long winded like introduction to the topic. And what I'll, I'll say generally is that, um, I'm still a purist on this. I'm keeping an eye on wearables. Um, I enjoy reading the occasional article here and there. I'm not like deeply researching it. Um, and I do think there could be a day where like, um, everything that goes into our watches and our devices, um, is pretty dang accurate. But right now I'm still more concerned with, um, what kind of mileage someone's putting in, if that pace is easy enough to recover when it's a non-quality day, is their volume continuing to grow? It's like, I, I feel like that conversation, because it gets put out there and someone sees it on their watch, it just seems to be growing in the community of like runners everywhere. And I, there's a part of me as an empathetic coach that just wants to say like, hey, stop worrying about what your watch says about your overall productivity. Um, it's just one tool. And honestly, I like it as a tool for quality days. So you know what paces you're getting into when you're targeting a specific workout. But beyond that, like put that watch in its proper place, you know, like don't let it replace how you actually feel when you wake up. Um, if your <laughs> heart rate's actually different when you wake up, et cetera. <laughs> I think you already have a reaction. So I'll just pass <laughs> it to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, on the, on the positive angle to this, I'll start there because I could go on a rant if I, if I wanted to on the positive angle, I, you know, it is a, an area of interest that is definitely something I watch and I'm curious about because sure in the world of AI and all these things, to the extent that we can create shortcuts in analyzing data that helps inform decisions or help you manage your training, then yeah, we should be taking full advantage of that. But, but then the rant part of that is right now, I think that 95% of it is useless at best. <laughs> And counterproductive or harmful at worst in terms of helping you manage these decisions or even be in the right mindset to train. The, I mean, the garment, I think, is a particularly bad offender, if I'm being honest. It just seems like every single algorithm they have that tells you something is negative. Training status, unproductive. Or you need 72 hours to recover from this run. Well, what does that even, none of that is helpful or what does it even mean? I had somebody recently who just got a new Garmin 255. And by the way, I like Garmin. They're a great tool. You know, it's, I, I'm a Coros user now, but not because Garmin isn't a great tool that has all the data that you need. But somebody sent me a picture of their Garmin 255 that they'd just gotten, and she's still trying to figure it out. But the Garmin simply said, no naps today. <laughs> Like with, with two Z's over it, like Z, you know, like Z's. <laughs> and, and, and so my question back was, is that a question, statement, or an order from your garment? 
<laughs> right? I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, is it telling you not to nap? Is it telling you didn't nap? I don't even know what that's getting to. But for the most part, most of it is is useful, is not useful, and you should ignore it. And you know, I do think where we're seeing advantage to the data is certainly the baseline running stuff, you know, pace, distance, heart rate, stuff like that is useful in the context of activity, not necessarily in the moment, but something to review after and learn from. And, but also heart rate, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, not if you're looking at the readiness stores scores or the interpolation of what that means, but rather looking at the hard data, understanding what the hard data really says, how it's trending, not necessarily responding it, responding to it from a day-to-day perspective, but more looking at the trends and what the trends are teaching you, and especially in the context of like my last episode, 345, I talked about training and managing through sickness. Some of that data, I think, is really useful to help you decide when to start back and when to add rigor back to your training. So there are pockets where it can be useful and helpful, but I think those are, at this stage, still pretty few and far between, unfortunately. And I do like, the other thing I will say about my chorus is I like the fact that, for the most part, all it tells me is positive things. It's so weird. It'll tell me goal achieved which I think is tied to my steps on a given day. It'll just tell me goal achieved. And I don't even know what it means, but it, but it's like, it's actually a nice little <laughs> mental boost. You're like, Oh, okay. I feel like I did something, even though, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing or what caused me to achieve my goal for the day, but it's better than my Garmin, which would more often than not tell me something negative about what I just did. Yeah. Um, so it, it tells you both that you achieved your goal and what your goal is. <laughs> Sounds like you didn't even know. <laughs> You're like, I reached the goal. I didn't know I, I had. don't know, but I'm happy about it and I feel accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the addition there that it's like at least it's throwing you something positive. I like you am like not anti Garmin. In fact, I'm I have stock in Garmin. I've lo- like I've only ever used Garmin as watch it. Like I love Garmin. When it comes to brands out there that exist, it, it's like one of my favorite brands out there. Amazing company and products. But um, yeah, hopefully listeners take from this that it's like, I, or I'll just throw this out there. It's like I've worked in software and so I have a little bit of like a framework in my head about like things get released to the public. Like you got engineers, you put to, they put together uh, basically what a product manager is telling them to like work on. They produce something for the public. They they pick it apart, find the holes, work on it better. But like, just you got to see it as even a big, huge established brand like Garmin or Koros, and they they've got great products and they're selling it to you. It doesn't mean that these like little um, technology coaches in the watch are right yet. Like it, they're in beta as well, right? Just like we're constantly getting better, they're they're working on getting better. And right now, um, yeah, just keep the watch in the proper place. Yeah, and I would add two two things to that. One, if it's an algorithm-based instruction or output, then it's likely not useful to you, and I wouldn't put much stock in it, especially absent a conversation with a coach to validate whether or not that makes sense. So if it's interpolating readiness scores or or fitness scores or race potential or 
heart rate zones, anything that's an, an algorithm interpolation of the, the raw data, likely not useful and certainly not something you want to use blindly. You'd want to use in coordination with a coach who could help you determine whether that use, information is useful and then apply it in a way that's useful. So that would be one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, and I and I did a mini rant on this this morning in our in our Renegades podcast, which is that effort is still king. How you feel, your perception of how you feel, not just in running, but how you wake up in the morning, as you alluded to earlier, is still more important than what your watch is telling you, especially in the context of trying to get the aerobic benefits that we're talking about in training. You still want to feel your breathing, your heart rate, how your body feels. And yes, we use certain data like pace to try to get you into a certain place, give you something to triangulate around in order to hit those effort zones. But please stop relying too heavily on your watch and instead listen to your body and then go back and look at the data afterwards and decide based on how you felt, what the data is telling you, what lessons you can take away from that workout. Because effort is what drives aerobic development, not pace. So I I think we've beaten that dead horse. But I like that you brought that one up because it is something that's top of mind for many and is pretty ubiquitous right now with all of the data that we're getting thrown at us all the time. Well, and sometimes like the psyche and emotions can be fragile at times. So like, you know, you could be having a hard week and you're feeling tired and then a workout doesn't go your way. And then you also get a reminder that's like, hey, your your watch says like you're unproductive. It's like, oh, come on, hold on, stop. Just, yeah. And an analogy on that that I would use that I think is kind of interesting for the football fans out there. There's a thing called Pro Football Focus, which is an analytical company that analyzes NFL players and gives them a score each week based on their performance in a game. And the way they score them is based on each play and whether or not that player fulfilled their role on that play and how they fulfilled that role on that play. And so there's a zero to hundred scale. Somebody who scores in the nineties theoretically did 90% of what they were intended to do as their role on a play may not be anything crazy, may not have scored, may not have done anything, but if they were a blocker and they were supposed to be blocking this person, did they execute on that block according to their role in the play in order to get the running back free or get the quarterback an opportunity to throw the ball or whatever it may be? That's how they score. Now, interestingly, you talk to coaches or players who react to these scores, they'll say, well, there's something there, but also those people analyzing it, just watching film, they don't know what the play call was. They don't know what the intention was for every player. And so sometimes they think a player was supposed to do one thing based on the setup, but in reality, it was actually called differently. And that player got dinged for doing something that was actually intended, but may not have been as obvious to the outside observer. And so I kind of think of our watch data in the same way, in that especially you know, with Garmin training status. Training status, unproductive. Well, Garmin didn't know what your objective was on the day. 
it's sort of assuming what your objective was on the day and then telling you that that was unproductive based on its own assumptions, which are likely not accurate and certainly not obvious to the watch. And so it's giving you a ding when maybe you achieved exactly what you were supposed to do on the day based on what your coach or training program prescribed. And that's what often it's missing is context. So there we go. Well said and great analogy. (laughs) For the sports fans out there. Okay, my so that's two. My second one, and I don't know to what extent you've heard about this, but there's a phrase going around the elite training world that is called the Norwegian way. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Okay, so there's a high-level 1,500-mile athlete right now called Jakob Ingebrigtsen, Olympic champion. Got beat actually at Worlds last year by Joss Kerr, but is winning the mile, the 1500, and coming back and winning the 5K quite often, and is one of the, in the men's sport, one of the, on the track, probably the number one name in the sport right now. And he, in a naturally, of course, whenever there's a high-level athlete in any sport, and he's Norwegian, and people want to talk about, oh, what's he doing to train? And so you'll hear people talk about the Norwegian way, which is essentially right now code for what is Jakob Bingabritsen doing to be the best in the world at the 1500 and the 5K. And he's coached by his dad, has two brothers. I don't know if they're training at the same level, but they've also competed on the world stage. And so you'll hear people throwing around the Norwegian way. And often associated with that is something called the double threshold. So he will do these double threshold workouts where he'll do a threshold workout in the morning and he'll come around and do another threshold workout in the evening. And so you'll hear people like at the elite level, Molly Seidel being an example, who do these double threshold workouts. Some threshold workout in the morning, come back and do a threshold workout in the evening. And that is a hallmark apparently of Jakob Ingebrigtsen's training And so everybody's trying to apply the double threshold in their world. And so you'll hear elites talk about it. And then now, obviously, then it trickles down into everyday runners talking about it. And so it's something that to me is interesting because, you know, as a student of the sport, you got to study the best of the best and see how that applies to everybody else. I mean, that's how we developed all of our training principles is really looking at the elite athlete, how they train and how we can then apply that to the everyday athlete. And so naturally it's something I follow and watch. And it is interesting as a part of that to see how people get to application. And I think that is generally interesting across all sorts of elite kind of extrapolation because you'll have people do one interview, talk about one example of one day of work. And then people, you know, (laughs) then extrapolate that in random ways, including, you know, in the elite world, you'll see people do things that I would consider not threshold workouts and double it up in a day. And somehow that's a double threshold and they're training like Jakob Ingebrigtsen. And, and so I guess the reason I bring it up is because I, mostly as a cautionary tale 
I think there are things to learn from what he's doing. And actually Canova, you know, the great Kenyan marathon coach has things that might be considered double threshold in his protocols for marathoners where somebody will come and do a long run in the morning, come back around and do something later in that afternoon. Steve Sisson, you know, our former team road coach, former podcast co-host with me, he would have us in a certain window of time, do stuff like that. But in general, I think you have to be very, very careful to take a soundbite from one person and extrapolate it to, this is how everybody should be training for a lot of reasons. One, because it's just a soundbite, usually out of context soundbite. So you don't know how it all fits together. And also two, because you're talking about an individual athlete who happens to be probably the most talented middle distance and distance runner in the world right now. And what he can do and works for him is not necessarily going to be what works for everybody else. Certainly there are things to learn, but what we're learning from him will probably happen in 20 years time and not what's kind of playing out real time. And so in general, I would advise people to be very, very careful or cautious to take sound bites or little snippets of training from an athlete and then apply it broadly. The other part of that is that I think it's interesting what people latch onto and then think is the secret. Mm-hmm. You know, the secret for Jakob Ingebrigtsen, if you really dig into his training, is massive volume. The guy does massive volume as a miler and does it mostly at easy intensities. And yes, he has more intensity than most people because he's built that big aerobic foundation. But his secret probably isn't the double threshold. While there's interesting things, I think, to learn from what he's doing with double thresholds, his secret is likely that massive aerobic foundation as a miler that's allowing him to use his speed late in a race to hold off those that are coming to beat him. And that is a part of the plot that gets lost because everybody's focused on this newfangled double threshold idea. And so that's another thing that's interesting about it. And then, you know, the third thing, and I think we'll kind of get to this idea in, in some other topics that we get to is that oftentimes those types of elements are more advanced elements, the ones that get focused on, the double threshold being the example here. It's like until you've built that aerobic foundation, you haven't earned the right to even consider doing a double threshold type workout. And so instead of jumping to that, let's make sure we lay the foundation. And then as we advance, get more experience, we can then apply some of these more advanced concepts and training and see the benefit. But that's once we get to the marginal gains aspect of it. And we've really taken care of the fundamentals and the foundation. Because if you just jump to the double threshold and you don't have that aerobic foundation, that's a recipe for injury. That's a recipe for for peaking and plateauing well below your potential. And, you know, it's a recipe for not being able to stay in the sport for a long time because you're doing too much intensity without the aerobic volume to go with it. So it's kind of a mixed mixed uh, topic there in terms of the good and the bad, but it's definitely something I've been hearing about in the elite world that I, that I had to mention. Yeah. So I find it really interesting and I agree with you wholeheartedly as a protocol. I like to the everyday runner, I'd be like, please don't jump in 
to doing that. And I think you made the case really well. So my response, I guess what I'll say that is, um, one, like see it through the holistic lens, like you were saying. Um, and so I consider a double in and of itself of an advanced protocol, much less a double quality in one day. And I'm still fairly conservative with the majority of runners that I coach who want a second quality workout in the week. Like it's any, I guess what I want to articulate here and express is that anytime, you know, these kinds of protocols and one-liners pop out like Norwegian way, double threshold. Um, it's like, don't abandon your entire philosophy. Like, like, like you mentioned, his high volume is the key, but it's like, before you get to high volume, you got to have like, you got to run frequently. So it's like, first you got to ask yourself, like, am I running, you know, six, seven days a week? Cause if not, then you don't even need to be paying attention to the Norwegian way and the double threshold. You just need to increase your frequency. And then in that frequency, are you running like 60, 70 mile weeks? Because if not, you just need to focus on making mileage gains. It's like, I guess I'm wanting the listeners to take from that is like, see these as sequentially ordered protocols and recommendations and training um, prescriptions so that you make sure you gain all the benefit that you can from all of the tried and true fundamentals that already exist, which would be my last reaction to all this. And that's, I would uh, love, like if I'll go research this later, but like if there's a conversation out there that's recorded with his dad, if the dad's the coach, like as to why he felt that protocol was needed, that would be something really interesting to to hear. Um, Because there, there could be that like he, let's say he got him upward to upwards of 100, 100 plus mile weeks and he had, you know, his set of quality workouts that, and, and those progressions that he was going through and just felt like there was a bit of a plateau. And so he might've inserted this extra stressor um, at that point. That could be interesting. I'd love to hear that. But in the absence of knowing exactly why he added this additional stressor to his overall training load, I'm, I'm like, no, there's no way um, any of, I would not want any of my athletes adding a, a second threshold in a day, much less even in a week. So that's a good, you make a good point about the workouts in a week, you know, cause in general, our programming, one workout a week, one core workout. I, I mean, one main workout, I should say, because we might have some additional work in another run that'd be stride, something simple. That's just to touch on a little bit of speed, but that core workout of intervals or threshold work or tempo work or Hills or whatever it may be, that's one a week. And I think, and that's what most people need to get their full potential, even as they start to get more advanced because the volume, the easy volume, the big long run, the big medium long run is actually the really important stuff that allows you to then use that speed. And so for 90, I don't know, 5% of the people, maybe more one workout a week is central. If you're doing right by your other volume elements Versus, yeah, two in one day, very, very different. I think the other layer, by the way, there is also preparation for doing rounds. You know, these guys are doing three rounds of the 1500 at the Olympics. And so they're racing sometimes back-to-back days, sometimes every other day. So there's, you have to prepare for that and, and give your body that resilience that you just don't need if you're one if you're one running one race on one day that might be four or five months away. 
So yes, focus on the fundamentals before you get into too many layers. That's my second. Before we get to your second, I want to quickly talk about my partnership with Run Johnji. You can reach their website at johnji.com or runjohnji.com. They're a running apparel company that has good looking, but also really functional apparel. I've talked about some of their pieces already on this podcast. They're also about to release their spring line. So you'll see some new warm weather stuff coming out very soon if you check out their website. The cool thing about Johnji is that they feature artists and cultures from in their designs from around the world. So that's a way to storytell, I think, in a cool way to help learn about other artists and cultures. But also 2% of all revenue goes to support water projects all around the world. So they're also giving back with every dollar you spend with them. You can use my code for 10% off. Rogue is the code, R-O-G-U-E, all caps for 10% off. Whether that be your first order, your second order, your fifth order with them, use that code and you'll get 10% off. So go check it out. All right, James, what's your number two? All right, my number two was just jotted down as super shoes, but really it comes around, it's a broader conversation on shoes in general and technology and shoes and nylon versus carbon plates like you know sometimes i get it asked in the um form of hey what do you think of the alpha flies or what do you think of like super shoes or what's the best shoe for me and as always like i think any good consultant or coach the 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 start of the response should be it depends um and where i'm going with this is that like honestly when people ask me what i think about super shoes i i honestly say this is almost an inverse of kind of the way we presented the the topics, but it's like, I don't think about super shoes much at all. I think <laughs> it's interesting. And I think that it makes sense that brands go try to maximize and innovate, like ma- basically maximize their products and innovate. And like, that's their job, right? Is like to ask like, how do I make the best shoe possible? So I'm glad that they're out there experimenting and creating things. But um, I just, again, it, you can feel my whole outlook and philosophy come out in every answer I feel like, but um, I just think there's a lot more to be asked about shoes. Like I wish um, athletes were asking me more about um, how do I find the right shoe for me? If, or if I'm going to switch up my shoe, how, how do I like, you know, how do I go about determining the right shoe for me when I'm in the store? And again, that comes to like fit and feel like, are they leaving space in the toe box? Is it comfortably snug through the arch? Um, are they familiar? I'd rather arm athletes with terms like stack heights and heel to toe drop. So they don't go from a, a standard heel to toe drop, which is about 10 to 12 millimeter, uh, 10 to 12 millimeters from their heel to their toe, um, down to a zero overnight. Like I would rather an athlete's mind be looking at it through the lens of, um, am I getting my mileage? Am I getting my training? Am I getting my volume? Do, does my shoe have um, room for my foot to swell throughout a run. Um, and rather than what will I get if I buy this new super shoe that supposedly gives me 2%, um, performance enhancement again, nothing wrong, like nothing wrong with getting them and enjoying it. Like if, if it's your hobby and you like a cool pair of shoes on race day, then that's great. Um, but I just think the additional cost of some of these super shoes might be better spent with a PT that talks to you about alignment and how your hip stacks with your knee and it, and your knee stacks with your ankle 
um, rather than do I have the new carbon plate from whatever brand? Like, and it's not not just Nike. There's plenty out there. Nike's just the at the forefront of it, front of it because of the sub two with Kipchoge and all that. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I I completely agree with all of that. You know, my thoughts recently on super shoes. You know, I think definitively it makes you faster. You know, I, I mean, I have I actually have a pair of the Adios Pro, which is one of the Adidas super shoes. I can tell you if I'm doing especially short intervals, you absolutely notice the difference. Even down to 200 intervals, you can, you, you just, there's this bounce to you that allows you to go faster that's palpable. So it's real. And then obviously it's well documented and studied that, and, and there is a difference in the individual response to each shoe depending on it, but it makes you faster. You save energy over longer races and therefore you can go faster. And I did a whole episode on super shoes, in fact, and sort of how to apply it in your training, episode 270, if you want to go back to that. The thing I'm still figuring out, and I'm not sure that anybody really has figured out, is how it should be utilized as a tool in training and the impact on what it can allow you to do. As an example, you'll hear people, especially elites, will talk about, well, it allows me to recover faster. So therefore, I like them for that reason and I can do, you know, hard work or whatever. Again, more or more, you know, more frequently or, or sooner after I've done a big long run, for example. And I can tell you from personal experience, and again, it's all going to vary. That hasn't necessarily been true for me. You know, if I do a 20 mile run, 22 mile run in super shoes, honestly, I haven't noticed a big difference personally in how that makes my legs feel the next day. Not to mention the impact on, you know, the, the training effect and what that looks like. So you know, I have not observed for me that I can go do a long run in super shoes and then somehow do something else hard sooner because of them. It's, it just hasn't felt that way for me. And some people maybe feel, feel better or worse, but you also can't neglect to consider the, you know, the metabolic, the aerobic, the, you know, effects on recovery that extend beyond just are your are your muscles sore or not right and so you know for me as i've been personally experimenting with it in my last obviously in my houston marathon cycle i still don't know that i've read about heard or experienced personally a formula for how to incorporate them into training in a way that's most optimal and that includes how often you should be wearing them. You know, people are split on, should you wear them for every workout to get used to it and to be able to operate at those speeds? Or should you only wear them periodically for some workouts so that you're not, you're not handicapping the benefits of a slower shoe and what that can provide to you? And then the same for recovery. You know, I, I've not observed any quicker recovery when wearing them. I still find that 
I need to balance my easy runs appropriately, space my runs the same way. You know, having done races in them, I mean, I did that Turkey Trot 10K in super shoes and felt beat up like I'd run a 10K, you know, the next few days and therefore had to recover appropriately. And so, and this isn't a knock on super shoes at all. You know, they, again, they'll make you faster. Certainly if you're using them on race day and you should be experimenting to figure out what works for you, if you're going to wear them and get the brand that works for you and all that. I like the Adios Pro, but Puma has a great one. Nike obviously has a great one. Asics has a great one. I mean, if you look at the top of the sport now, I mean, it's not all brands are there, but every brand has a good shoe and how that fits for you, you'll have to decide. But but again, I don't think there is an answer yet to that question of how does it affect training and how do I optimize using it to optimize the benefits in training. I think we know it makes us faster on race day. The data is clear. The science tells us that. But from a application to training standpoint, I still think we're figuring it out. And I also think that most likely the answer is very individual, which is going to make it hard to draw broad conclusions. Well, and on that note, so I, again, I'm, I want to give the disclaimer. I'm not super well read on this because I, I had mentioned I when people say, what do you think of super shoes? I genuinely don't think on them too much. But as a coach, I get the questions. Um, and the I've come across things like, um, I think it was Jay DeSherry at some point who had said, or he was quoted like um, saying it like, puts more more of that energy return goes goes straight to the ankle um with them and he seemed to have more of a cautious outlook i don't know if that's changed in the last couple of years um, but he's someone i respect just i've both met him and i think he's an authority on physical therapy um and i've read two of his books um and then i've also come across um i read once that um quote, that percentage of getting faster, actually, like the faster you run, the greater percentage increase in that. Have you heard anything on this? Where it's like, if you're on the um, less fast end of the spectrum, the degree to which it makes you faster on race day is actually smaller than someone, you know, like Kipchoge, who's really throwing down and has immaculate form. Um, Yeah, I think significantly depends on your form. For example, you know, that more shuffle form is going to get less of a benefit from him from them than someone that has a bigger knee drive and a bigger back kick for example cuz you're you're not activating the trampoline effect as well with more shuffle stride than you know with a more dynamic stride and so you know that's where it all kind of depends on how you're how fast you're going what your form is you know how exactly your foot interacts with that plate and the foam so it's so there's a lot here. And again, it's not a knock on any of it. I think definitively super shoes make you faster and everybody who's thinking about getting fast should be thinking about using it as a tool. But I think we're what we're just saying is that I think if anybody tells you they think they figured out the formula for how to use it in training or that super shoes make it easier to recover and so therefore you can do harder training because of super shoes, I think they're selling you snake oil and I would be highly cautious to follow such advice and if anybody has definitive science or stuff on this that they think is really good then please send it over because i've been trying to find it and read it and and, you know i'm soaking it up because obviously it's a relevant topic for my runners as a coach but 
I'm, I'm just here to say, I think the jury is still well out. And even in my own training, I go back and forth and debate, you know, use how I use them as a tool significantly because of my own experience. So that's that one. Yeah. And while it was mine, I will, I'll, I'll give a final thought in that's that, uh, that, yeah, if anyone sends you stuff, send it my way too, because, um, this is, this is obviously one that I have less to say on and more to read about on. Yeah. But, but it's a good one. Glad you brought it up. Okay. My number three is fueling on the run. And this idea that you'll read a lot about now of more carbs is better and people trying to cram even more carbs in, you know, up to 120 grams per hour because a cyclist did it in a time trial and that really worked for him. And so you're reading a lot about this, people trying to amp up the amount of carbs they're taking in, in terms of grams per hour, then, then is this typical protocol? You know, oftentimes you hear people say, all right, gels every 35 to 40 minutes or 35 to 45 minutes, you know, which means you might be getting 40 to 50 carbs per hour, grams of carbs per hour. And now people are talking about trying to get 80, 100, 120 grams of carbs per hour in order to maximize your performance on race day, especially in efforts where you're going hard, you know, I would say at marathon intensity or, or less, you know, this is not necessarily something people talk about as much in the ultra world, for example, cause you're, you're getting more fat burning going on there. But anyway, but that's a big topic. There is some evidence, even scientific study wise that more carbs is better. And so as I mentioned on my more is more or less is more episode that that's something people should be thinking about is considering amping up the frequency at which they take gels if that's what they're using to fuel their runs. But but there's just there's a lot of layers to it and I think you know it's also a bit of a cautionary tale as well about any of this newfangled stuff you hear about which is that you have to be careful about the sound bites you take and how you apply it. You know, one of the things that's clear is that elite athletes are talented and faster than us because of their aerobic profile, but also typically because they have a metabolic profile that's more advanced as well. So an elite's ability to process carbs per hour is typically more advanced than an everyday runner's ability to process carbs per hour, just like they have a higher VO2 max. They can process more oxygen per hour than we can. So as a result, you know, when we're talking about more carbs, we have to be considering that an elite, an elite level athlete is going to be able to cram in more and get the benefit from it than, than we are. You know, the other part of this is nutrition in any capacity is very much in of one. All of us need to experiment with different gel brands, different flavors, different frequencies, different modalities perhaps if you're using UCAN or something like that in order to fuel your runs instead of a sugar-based product. So, and the flavors and everything else involved, we all have to experiment individually to figure out what works for us before we can have a plan that we can use on race day and feel good about. So that's a, another layer to this conversation. And then of course, as a part of that, even if you decide to amp up your carbs, grams per hour, that's great. 
but then you have to do it and experiment with it in a stepwise fashion. Because one thing we definitively know is that you can't go from 40 per hour to 100 per hour without having serious GI distress. Mm -hmm. And so you actually have to train your body to take in more before you just start taking in more and getting the benefit. And so even if you decide and believe that more carbs per hour is going to benefit you, you still have to train and work on it in order to make sure you can get the benefit of it. And then as a part of that, you got to find the threshold that's right for you. Maybe you find it 60 or 80 and not 120, like the one elite cyclist that we have the example from. So I wanted to bring it up, you know, and then I guess the other layer here is that, you know, just like we talked about with some of these other topics, there's fundamentals. And until you're mastering the fundamentals, we probably shouldn't be worried about carbs per hour, you know, until your volume isn't, isn't at a certain level or is at a certain level until you're following the other fundamentals of training, until you figured out a base routine for gels that works for you using the standard guidelines. We shouldn't be playing with these higher order stuff and our higher order elements until we know that we've got the fundamentals down because you know, 120 grams of carbs per hour, even if you can consume it, isn't going to help you that much in a marathon if you're running 20 miles a week. Yep. And I guess there's two thoughts that came to mind. We've discussed this with some of our virtual athletes. And I would say that um, where we left on that conversation, that this is something I'm reading on nutrition in general. Um, but, uh, and it's this carb protocol, actually, uh, Galpin, Dr. Andy Galpin, in an interview with Andrew Huberman, has actually affirmed that as a protocol, like generally, like 120 um, grams of carbs per hour. And, you know, I, in the weight room, taking it, taking that much in seems doable, but I've, to put it in perspective where my mind's at, it's like, well, there's four calories per gram of carbs. So that's 480 calories an hour. And if you're doing your standard kind of three hour long run on the weekend, you're knocking on the door of like 1500 calories per long run. And that would just be a, a drastic change. Um, and so I would say that all that I've allowed this to do thus far, because the, the jury seems to be out on whether or not it enhances performance still seems to be a question. Um, and then two, within training, it's like, I know that the old protocol has been like, or the general protocol has been like every 30 to 45 minutes, potentially that you take your standard serving of uh, goos or gels, et cetera. And I've gotten very comfortable just saying, hey, take them every 30 minutes, because I know that carbs are on our side. They're our friend. We know that upper limit to be 120. Um, at least I'm calling it an upper limit as 120. So I'm looking at it as like, all right, supposedly there's there's information out there. There's data out there that you could go that high. We don't know if it actually increases performance on race day if you were to hit that number A. And then B, you even if, even if it was the correct protocol, you got to make changes gradually and slowly. Like when I started taking creatine, I had to have a loading phase, right? There's a, there's a time at which I've got to take before my body's operating that way. So I would say like general dietary intake or is about half of your calories coming from carbohydrates. Make sure you're good there because your general diet impacts thing. And then within the run, we know that we've got glycogen stored. We've got 90 minutes to two hours of sugar that's ready right there for the muscles to utilize. So it's like, um, I, I still don't prescribe that any of my runners take in uh, sugar before the one hour mark, though I know some of the 
information out there is saying take it on the start line and every 30 minutes and drive it way up and see how many carbs you can get your body. And I'm just like, I just feel like these are aggressive swings and I'm still operating by those, uh, things that I know about glycogen and I know that under an hour, our body's good. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't recommend taking that first gel, um, until like the 60 to 75 minute mark. And then I've gotten comfortable sliding down to the 30, every 30 minutes after that pop one, that way it's just a very controllable, but beyond that, I haven't gotten to where I've heard enough yet where I'll start changing what I recommend to runners beyond what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's an area where people are experimenting, where research is, is generally pretty new. Now, by the way, if you do talk to elite cyclists, they would tell you that they've been pressing the limits on carbs per hour for a long time. So I'm not sure that it's, this is that groundbreaking in general, but it is something that is obviously in the running space more, more topical right now than it has been in the past. And so, you know, if you're at that point of looking at marginal gains and you're trying to find the marginal gains for you, this might be an area to experiment. And it does seem like more is better, but we know there is a limit at some point. 120 being, you know, an, a, limit, a limit perhaps for an elite cyclist, but somewhere between probably 60 and 120 is where every one of us will find our limits. So then it's a matter of finding that limit, training your body to reach up to it, and then being able to practically execute on, the, execute on that on race day by carrying as much as you need. Because that's the other part here is you're going to have 120 carbs per hour. You're going to be carrying five gels and taking five gels per hour in a four-hour marathon. That's 20 gels. I mean, that's a lot <laughs> to carry. You're going to need a duffel bag to bring those along. So there's also a practical element here of what you're willing and can and able to carry and, and logistically put back. But if you want to experiment with it, great, but do it in incremental ways and test it, figure out what works in training well before you get to that start line and then go from there. But you, you might also find, by the way, that it doesn't work for you and that's okay too. There's a lot of standard-based protocols that will work for people that seem to be ubiquitously used. So this doesn't have to be an area where you you try to push the envelope, but it is one possible. Okay. What's your third one? I just want to throw in a joke and say that you got to make sure your duffel bag of 20 gels doesn't (laughs) offset the super shoe and the one ounce difference in the carbon (laughs) plate. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, Okay. Um, my last one was more, I just called it the bucket of recovery modalities. Um, there's so much out there for recovery, whether it's like rolling equipment, um, compression, infrared versus cryotherapy or hot versus cold, except like there's so much out there. And, um, again, coming into this after you gave me the idea, I was like, before people go down that pathway and try to have a universal answer on um, what is the best recovery modality? I would say, um, people are going to hate this because it's just so straightforward and simple, but it's like, have you figured out your sleep routine yet? Like, (laughs) uh, sleep's going to trump all of that. And so again, I'm like, I guess the spirit I came into all this is like, where would I want their mind to be first? And it's like, if you aren't 
averaging 56 hours a week of sleep. So eight hours a night, like trying to think about like, am I more often getting eight hours than not? Um, then some of this stuff becomes just like minutia. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. Cause there's a lot out there. You can spend a lot of money and waste a lot of time on recovery modality stuff outside of the number one tool that you have, which is sleep. And by the way, there's two others behind that that are even just as easy or even easier maybe, which is fueling well and properly after, especially after your long runs and workouts with well-balanced filling meals and easy recovery movement in the form mostly for us of easy recovery running. If you do those three things and you optimize those three things, those three things, then likely it doesn't matter what you're be, what you're doing beyond that. And I will also say that in general, the bro science around some of this stuff is pretty nauseating. <laughs> the top of that list for me is cold plunge. <laughs> I I am just if I see another bro on Instagram doing a cold plunge challenge or where he's doing so many days and talking about the benefits, I just I just roll my eyes and laugh every time because it's not what they think it is. <laughs> and like um, how fast um, something simple turns into like a product that can now be featured and marketed and sold to you at a really high rate. That to me yeah. is the part that I love the entrepreneurial spirit. I'm a capitalist. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I you know, I love that people are out there saying like, here's an opportunity to start a business and sell someone something like, it's great. And I love like, um, using cold water as a recovery and Barton Springs is still my favorite, even though it's probably still not cold enough if we were to get into like ice bath protocols. Um, but just responding generally to what you brought up of like, yeah, you can buy yourself a really expensive version of all this. Um, when in reality, it's like you just said, are you going easy on easy days? Um, are you eating enough? That actually is a big one. Like runners generally speaking need to eat more like you know are you really uh hitting enough calories for all the training that you're doing and then still anchoring on the one i started with and that's like sleep being primo like if i can master sleep i'm gonna feel so awesome um and i and i'm admitting i have not mastered mastered it yet but it's like that's where i want people's focus and attention and um thoughts to be like don't go spending more money on something to give yourself like that little cognitive win of like, Oh, I did something for myself in the name of recovery. When in actuality, like do the hard work of analyzing your own sleep patterns and then making those grown up choices to abide in it and live in it. And that's me preaching to me, by the way, yeah. and sharing it publicly so that maybe others will, who are struggling the way I do will start to behave better. Yeah. And I would, Picking on cold plunge for a second, I would go as far to say if you're cold plunging every day, but you're not sleeping well, you're not doing your easy runs easy on recovery days, and you're not fueling well post run or workout, then you are wasting your time and likely your money on that cold plunge. I would also say that I think cold plunge done too much can be dangerous in a sense that you're getting that endorphin hit, that cortisol hit that you become addicted to. It isn't necessarily good for activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, 
from being relaxed and low stress. You're actually putting your body into a flight or fight state intentionally every day. And that's not healthy. If you think about the long-term applications, and it's going to be interesting to see when people start to study the long-term long-term applications of that, what actually happens. Now, as it relates to the occasional jump in Barton Springs after your summer run, what I would submit there is that I think the benefit of that is less about that cortisol hit because you're not really getting one in 65 degree water. Mm-hmm. And it's more about you are actually bringing your core body temperature down a little bit more quickly post a really hot, humid summer run. And there is probably benefits to that because it actually puts your body back into a state of being able to perform recovery processes faster than when your body temperature is elevated. So that is a completely aside digression, but I do think there's nuance to it. Yeah. Well, well, there's nuance and it's not too much of a, an aside or uh, digression because it fits to like you know, you could start with something like that, just, just cooling off and getting still. And like, it represents that whole, like tweak the little small controllables first before you worry about the grand overhaul. Yeah. I mean, like I, I think about it this way, a cool down routine, even take out the jumping in Barton Springs or jumping in colder water, a cool down routine where you give your body space and time after a run to relax to drop its body temperature, to be calm, to breathe so that your body gets into a parasympathetic recovery state before you then go to work or go to the, <laughs> go to the hang out with your friends or whatever might be stimulus next, right? Or look at your phone and get simulated that way. And there's something to that for sure. So Anyway, but yes, prioritize recovery accordingly and be very, very careful of the snake oil that is the capitalist recovery marketplace. So there you go. Good one. Like it. Okay. That's it. Six topics, six coaching ruminations, curiosities that have been bouncing around in in the heads of James and I. Hopefully it sparked some thoughts and interest and curiosity in you. And we really appreciate you indulging us with this slight change in, in sort of format for an episode. So thanks to that. Thanks for that. Thanks to you, James, for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.